Good evening. The fighting continues in Gaza as protesters demonstrate at the Israeli consulate in New York and a press conference of three groups, separate groups coming together in New York to discuss how developers are destroying their green spaces. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. Israel bombarded Gaza with airstrikes and Palestinian militants resumed cross-border rocket fire on Tuesday after a brief overnight lull. The United Nations reports 52,000 Palestinians have been forced from their homes by the fighting. At least three Palestinian protesters were shot to death during clashes with the Israeli forces in the West Bank town of Ramallah today. Ramallah today, one of the victims was 25 years old. And a teenager was also shot dead during the protests as Israeli soldiers fired live ammunition and tear gas while protesters burned tires and used slingshots to pelt soldiers with rocks. These events occurred as Israeli leaders say they're pressing on with their offensive. In Washington, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says diplomats are working behind the scenes to bring about a ceasefire. The United States remains greatly concerned by, uh, by the violence, by the escalating violence. Hundreds of people uh, killed or injured, uh, including children being pulled uh, from the rubble. We're also alarmed by how journalists and medical personnel have been put at risk. Um, Palestinians and Israelis, like people everywhere, uh, have the right to live in safety and security. Uh, this is not an Israeli privilege or a Palestinian privilege. It's a human right. Uh, and the current violence has ripped it away. So we've been working intensively behind the scenes to try to bring an end to the conflict. Uh, President Biden has been in touch with Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Abbas. I spent my own flight on uh, yesterday to Copenhagen uh, on the phone with uh, regional leaders, uh, including uh, from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, uh, as well as with uh, my counterpart in, in France, discussing the urgent need and the violence. And we'll continue to do that uh, later this afternoon. Further, we call on all parties to ensure the protection of civilians, especially children, to respect international humanitarian law, to protect medical facilities, protect media organizations, and protect UN facilities where civilians are desperately seeking shelter. And we are ready to lend support if the parties see, uh, seek a ceasefire. We'll continue to conduct intensive diplomacy to bring this current cycle of violence to an end. Uh, then we will immediately resume the work, the vital work, of making real the vision of uh, Israel and a Palestinian state existing peacefully, side by side, with people from all communities able to live in dignity. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Unlike past Israeli attacks on Gaza, this time some members of Congress have broken ranks with the administration, calling for a ceasefire and gingerly criticizing the Israeli government's actions. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. And Israel needs to stand down its military campaign as well. Have to take off the table a ground invasion of Gaza. Israel possesses disproportionate military power. That's why during the 2014 invasion of Gaza, 2,000 Palestinians died compared with less than 100 Israelis. But when children die in Gaza, it does nothing to secure Israel. In fact, it does the opposite. It just 
provides further fuel to this furnace of grievances. So I'm glad that the administration is sending Deputy Assistant Secretary Amr to the region, that he's there. It's critical that we also get a formal U.S. ambassador to Israel in place as quickly as possible. But the United States needs to be pressing for a ceasefire. The United States can't afford to simply allow for this escalation to continue. That's not in Israel's best interest. That's not in America's best interest. And my hope is that in the conversations that are happening today between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu government, that they are talking about the terms to bring this violence to an end. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy on the West Bank in Israel and in Gaza, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians stayed home from work as part of a general strike today. One of the few times both segments of Palestinian society have engaged in a joint action. Streets were deserted in Arab areas across both Israel and the occupied territories as shopkeepers shuttered stores. Demonstrators instead gathered throughout the region and around the world in a day of action, waving Palestinian flags, listening to speeches and chanting against Israeli policies. In New York, thousands gathered outside the Israeli consulate on 42nd Street and 2nd Avenue. The numbers were apparently much bigger than expected as hundreds of protesters pushed back police fences and moved out into lanes of traffic on the street. An organizer of the New York Day of Action event is activist attorney Lamise Deek. She says Israel, with United States support, is engaging in war crimes. It's, it's bigger than we were prepared for and bigger than we expected, being that it's midday on a workday, yes. You can see that everybody's here. We've got parents, we've got people from all ethnic and religious backgrounds. Um, I think that there is a consensus about the outrageous actions that Israel has been undertaken for 73 years, but is escalating once again, as it does every few years. So I think people are heavily mobilized. When Palestinians were protesting just for their right to pray, they were being murdered and critically injured across the board. So we know that they're being murdered in the West Bank now for protesting. We had 12 as of today killed just in the West Bank. So we're well aware where Israel stands about Palestinian rights of free speech. We want people to take direct action to demand that the U.S. impose an immediate embargo and sanctions against Israel until it dismantles all institutions of apartheid and settler colonialism. Nothing else will stem or get us out of the holding pattern of violence and Palestinian response. It's Israeli violence that needs to be dismantled and ended. We want people to do whatever it takes to ensure that this government stops encouraging and incentivizing Israeli genocide and apartheid in Palestine. What would you say to Joe Biden if you had him here? Shame on you. And I hope, I hope that we will find ways to hold all third states who have encouraged and incentivized the murder and genocide and apartheid and torture of Palestinian children to account, whether it's in The Hague or elsewhere. We will not forget and we will hold everybody to account. Activist attorney Lamise Deek. And a Jewish protester, Rosalind Pachetsky, held her sign as she joined the pro-Palestinian rally, the sign that told her story. It says, I am a Jew and I support freedom for Palestine and I absolutely abhor Israeli crimes. I think we're seeing a very, very big change. Even among Jews, especially young Jews, are questioning and saying, 
Israel does not speak for me. I am not a Zionist, but I am a Jew, and those are not the same thing. I absolutely will not support the massacre of children, the deliberate targeting of hospitals and clinics in Gaza, the devastation, the ethnic cleansing, the attempt to get people out of their homes where they've been, they were driven in 48, and now they must be refugees again in their own land? No. So as a Jew, I say that, that absolutely violates my ethics, my religion, and everything I hold dear. Protester Rosalind Pacheksi. Another protester, Fatima, says she's been demonstrating for the Palestinian people since she was a kid. When I was 16, I met Palestinian refugees, and they showed me pictures and videos and told me what was going on. And when I started asking people here about it, they told me something completely different than what I had seen with my own eyes. And I didn't like that. And I didn't like that I knew that our tax dollars, I'm going to work, I'm paying taxes, and my tax dollars are killing children and violating international laws that we claim to uphold through the rest of the world. We go to war for the same laws that we're breaking for Palestine. It's not right. Gaza is an open-air concentration camp. They're locked in. They don't even have food, water, electricity. So if we don't stand up for them, it's ethnic cleansing what's happening, and it's not right. Lately, we've been seeing more crowds and more people across the world than I've ever seen before. And I'm also very, very, very happy that we have a lot of support from the Jewish community, which is very important to me because we are not against Judaism. This has nothing to do with Jews and Muslims or Jews and Palestinians. That's a very false narrative. It's about politics and it's about Zionism, which is completely different from Judaism. You have a message from President Biden if he was here. We're going to remember this next year and we're not going to take pressure off of you until this stops. It's not enough to just politely suggest that maybe you should stop killing 61 children in seven days bombing schools. You need to stop sending them money and stop sending them American bombs. It is a war crime. You are committing war crimes with our money. And that's a protester at the Palestinian Day of Action today on 2nd Avenue and 42nd Street at the Israeli Consulate. And in Washington, with new CDC guidance on relaxing rules on wearing masks for fully vaccinated Americans, some states are rushing to end the unpopular mandates for everyone, not just the vaccinated. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says public schools must end mask requirements starting in June and is ordering Texas cities and counties to drop nearly all face covering mandates by the end of the week. The move comes as Texas coronavirus cases and COVID-19 deaths continue to plunge and vaccines are being made available to children as young as 12. The Texas State Teachers Association criticized Abbott's decision as premature. And in further Washington news, the president's COVID-19 task force held a press conference, the main drift, that young people increase their rates, that young people should increase their rates of vaccination. In a dramatic moment during the briefing, White House COVID advisor Andy Slavitt revealed that one of his sons was diagnosed with the virus late last year and still suffers from lingering side effects. Three million kids under 17 have contracted COVID-19. And even though it's rare for kids to get severely ill from COVID-19, it can happen. I want to reveal something personal with permission that underscores their importance. 
last fall, one of my sons con uh, contracted COVID-19. Unfortunately, he is one of the many Americans battling long-term symptoms. He's young and fit and in the prime of his life. But six months later, he still suffers from tachycardia, shortness of breath, and ongoing and frequent flu-like symptoms. His hands are cold to the touch. Neither he nor his, nor his parents, my wife and I, are sure how long this will last. Many young people are in this situation, and many, many have it worse. I know it's easy when you're young to imagine that these things don't affect you. A vaccine may feel unnecessary. You feel healthy. You know people who've had COVID and they're doing all right. But we are still learning about the long-term effects of COVID. And that is Andy Slavitt, the White House COVID advisor. According to the CDC, more than 3 million kids under 17 have contracted COVID-19. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. At this hour, activists and community leaders are rallying at Governor Andrew Cuomo's Manhattan office, calling for movement in Albany on the recently introduced New York Climate and Community Investment Act. It's billed as an intergenerational event, including a number of youth climate activists. It's one of 12 rallies being held across the state. Activists say the CCIA would generate 10 to $15 billion in revenue and invest the funds in green job creation in communities hit hardest by the climate crisis. A high school student, Catherine Gilosa is with the environmental organization Triage. This event is a rally at Governor Cuomo's office, and we're out here like tonight um, rallying for the Climate Community Investment Act, the CCIA, which is a bill that would make polluters pay for the carbon they put into the air and reinvest that money back into communities. Why is that important? Because the communities that have done the least amount to contribute to climate change, predominantly like black and brown communities and communities of color, low-income communities, are really suffering the most. We've seen South Bronx, East Harlem, Astoria. These are all places that have a large community that are predominantly people of color, and they're known as Asthma Alley because of how bad the pollution is here. That's why we really need to reinvest money away from fossil fuel companies and oil companies and reinvest that into these communities. Who's supporting the bill? Original sponsors were Senator Kevin Parker and Assemblymember Kevin Cahill. And now we have, I think, around almost 30 sponsors in the Senate and around 40 to 50 sponsors in the Assembly right now. We've been just really working to get more. That's what the rallies are for. That's what all these actions are for. What would be the effect of this bill if it passed? What would happen? It would hopefully limit the amount of carbon put into the air just because companies would be, like, taxed for it. But not only that, we just really need to see the investments being put back in our committees, more renewable energy, green schools, programs for more jobs. The CCIA would create 160,000 new jobs in the first 10 years. So seeing more of that is really what like it would do. So what do you plan to do today? Today we're going to be putting pressure on Cuomo and some other elected officials, Senator Andrew Sorek-Cousins and Speaker Heasey, these really big power players, and putting pressure on them to try to sign on to the CCIA and make sure that it gets passed this year. 
High school student Catherine Gilosa with the environmental organization Triage. If passed, the bill would uh, put an annual tax credit or give an annual tax credit of $700 to low-income New Yorkers. Proponents of the bill say it will ensure revenue necessary to meet the climate and equity goals of the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that was enacted in 2019. And in more local news, a uh, press conference under the arch in Washington Square Park, a beautiful warm spring day, groups representing three precious green spaces. Bases under attack by New York City politicians and their developer allies. They all met to link their struggles. Representing groups fighting plans for massive high rises on Governor's Island, a huge seawall along the East River, and to bulldoze the Soho Community Garden. Each told how their problems stem from a city trying to le- relive the past, the era of Robert Moses, the mega builder who ignored communities he destroyed until a group of Lower East Siders ended his reign in the 1960s. Roger Manning is with the group Magic that's been fighting to plan a rezoning, an upzoning, they call it, of the parkland on Governor's Island into a so-called climate center, which would have uh, tall mega skyscrapers as part of the project. Uh, Manning says it's just a ruse for developers. Initial justification was they needed to bring in income for the island, and this would do it. They had, and, and they wanted to, they needed an anchor tenant. Okay, so they had this climate research center concept, and then they need height. They need those two things to, to draw developers because developers are where the money's going to come in, supposedly. But they've quit talking about the financial aspect of their proposal after a while because Magic and others pointed out that it wouldn't even break even till 2050 by their own figures. Any discussion regarding a climate center is irrelevant. It's an upzoning. It's an upzoning. It's an upzoning. There's no legal requirement for a climate center, so, okay. What's really distressing is the City Council Land Use Committee voted in favor of modifications by Margaret Chen. These modifi- no! Margaret Chen came up with these modifications. Instead of 300 feet now, it's going to be 225 feet heights. It, it's still, you know, un- unworkable. There shouldn't be anything built on the island that's over four stories. People need to get on it with their city council members. You need to call and email your city council members. Spread the word. Get on your city council member. And check out our new cartoon, the Hall of Shame. <laughs> Governor's Island Hall of Shame which uh, features Mayor de Blasio, Alicia Glenn, who is the chair of the trust. Alicia Glenn, the former Goldman Sachs, she referred to Governor's Island as a nice piece of real estate. All right? And she's speaking of Robert Moses. She has been, uh, it's been cited that she, she finds Robert Moses an inspiration. So that gives you the idea of, uh, you know, of the bigger picture here. And as activist Roger Manning, no uh, stranger to WBAI, the city council person for Lower Manhattan is Margaret Chin. And Fanny Ipp, an activist fighting to save East River Park from a massive seawall development, says her story is similar. Big money wants valuable property. East River Park is right on waterfront property, and it's really attractive right now, especially with all those NYCHA buildings along the way, and they're trying to privatize them. So a developer is going to come in and say, well, you know what? We'll save you this park if you let us put up an 80-story tower right there, you know? And what are we going to do? Say no, you know, either a sandlot or an 80-floor tower with affordable housing. So that is a real fear right now. And that's Fanny Ipp. In a discussion between Ipp and activist Tommy Loeb, the two explain the latest chapter in the continuing drama at the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project, the lawsuit that came out between the companies vying for the $1.4 billion 
contract to build the structure. The low bidder is a new consortium, which the high bidder says does not have the appropriate experience based on the amount of money that they allegedly claim they have done in prior projects. They had to show that they did a billion dollars in prior work, and the high bidder says that they fudged the numbers to reach that that number and that the city allowed it. Yeah, and, and also the fact that being that it's a joint venture, they totaled their their money to meet that billion dollars, and they're not supposed to do that. The second bidder also has a questionable history, and that's the whole issue with the, both the bidders. They overcharged the city $68 million in the Battery Park renovation that they did, and there, there have been multiple lawsuits by both companies, either against their subcontractors or against the city, and we expect with the litigation that it was probably going to ensue that this is definitely not a five-year five-year job. Even buildable, constructible, I mean, being that really it's only one company that's bidding. What is that? Politics involved. One company, I saw him, he gave so much money, 50,000, 60,000 more to the governor. One of the consortium guys on the other side, he gave money to the governor too. When they let the bids out, they claimed that they pre-qualified only the top firms in the city to bid on this project. Not everybody was allowed to bid. You had to be pre-qualified, and they told us only the top firms were pre-qualified, and then this was the only two people who bid. They lowered the qualifications. No one was bidding until they lowered it to where it is now. The engineering has never been substantiated, and there's enormous penalties built in. If you take this contract, and then you wind up being a year late, it's a twenty-five or $50,000, whatever the number is, a day fine for every day you're late. So that's where we wind up in the litigation, because they will then claim the engineering wasn't appropriate, the diagrams were inappropriate, and they'll sue the city. And that's what happened, for example, in the Battery Tunnel. They claimed that they were given bad documents, engineering documents, and the cost overrun was caused by the city, and they wound up getting an additional $89 million. We're in the same fight, because if this project runs out of money, who are we going to turn to other than some developer vampire, like Eileen mentioned, come in and swoop it all up? And that's Fannie Ip and Tommy, Tommy Loeb talking about the Eastside uh, uh, Coastal Resiliency Project, the seawall plan for the Lower East Side. And Manhattan Borough President candidate Lindsey Boylan, who organized today's news conference, says the problem is the tight relationship between city council members and borough presidents and their community board appointees. Two things I've been shocked by, even though I've been in public service, city, state level my whole career, pretty much, is the degree to which big real estate firms control the decisions made of this city and the way powerful politicians like the governor cede control to a few powerful players. So it's not Robert Moses in the same firm, but in essence, you have a very small number of people controlling the largest agencies that do infrastructure work make make the decisions that affect the whole city. So there is that dynamic still. Every community board, now that I've been, you know, listening in and trying to get a sense for where things are, good people who got onto the community board to serve feel like they are accountable to the 
the borough president or the city council member, and that's just ass backwards. It's really wrong. As a woman who's navigated my career when you know no one really wanted to give me any power or ability to control things, there are lots of creative ways to coalition build. And I think community board appointments, coming up with a sense of shared principles, a mission statement around who you appoint and how important the value of green space is, imagine appointing only people who, who understand that. And that has no demographic fixture. That's just people who care about livability in their borough. And so especially if I'm going to create some um, powerful enemies like I am very good at doing, the only way we succeed is if we have a whole new group of folks that represent the diversity of the city but have a shared set of principles on the community boards and know that I work for them, not the other way around. Manhattan Borough President Candidate Lindsey Boylan and referring to developers as the undead bloodsuckers made popular by Bram Stoker's Dracula, poet Eileen Miles read her poem, Vampires. So this is called the park. Politicians are like actors and real estate investment groups are like vampires. Politicians think they have to let bite them or they won't get any work. The rest of us are humans living around the show. Squirrels are squirrels, birds are birds, our park is a giant stage we thought was real because we walked there every day. It is a set that Robert Moses built so he could run his highway alongside it. My dog knows the story, you know the story, everyone knows the story. The vampires are building a giant boat on top of our park in order to save it. It will take about 10 years, the waters will rise, the children will be old, I will be dead. The vampires will be rich. The politicians will have all these tiny vials of blood lined up on their shelves from the years they were in that play. Eileen Miles reads her poem, Vampires. And finally, a report by the International Energy Agency says immediate action is needed to reshape the world's energy sector to meet ambitious climate goals by 2050. Eileen Alfandari reports. The agency's executive director, Fatih Birol, ticked off the agency's dramatic recommendations, including immediately ending investments in new coal mines, oil and gas wells, and immediate end to the construction of new coal-fired power plants. There is no need for new fossil fuel supply investments, oil, gas, and coal. Second, as of this year, no more, no more unabated coal-fired power plants built uh, around the world. Another one, in the year 2035, no new sales of internal combustion engine cars. The International Energy Agency said last month that 2021 will see the second largest annual increase in global warming emissions since 2010 as the world economy bounces back from the pandemic. B-roll warned there's a growing gap between the rhetoric on climate heard from governments and industry leaders and what is happening in real life. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. Thanks, Eileen. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, May 18th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.